Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Drayhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. And thank you for joining us at the beginning of a new year and the beginning of a new bracket. We are proud to present our prep school bracket. This is the last of the brackets on the Golf Prep Nerd Jock axis. And unsurprisingly, it's going to be mostly about preparatory schools, boarding schools, military academies, basically any school where it's a kind of heightened environment. Where you don't go home at the end of every day. Or at least where there are more complicated and strict cultures than just show up and, and take the bus home. I will say this is probably the most curated bracket we've ever done. If not, there would be a lot of teen sex comedies on here from the 80s and 70s, and I just didn't want to. We yeah. left one on. Yeah, you gotta leave one on. And obviously, the eight most popular movies about a boarding school did not make it on here, otherwise this whole bracket would just be Hermione Granger and her less competent friends. <laughs> We, we may do a two-part episode after all this is finished. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how I feel about J.K. Rowling at the time. <laughs> yeah. Recent events have not ingratiated herself to us. Mm. But I don't know if I want to spend, like, two whole episodes just shit-talking a franchise. <laughs> we should actually announce what we're talking about this week. That's probably important, yeah. This week we're talking about Dead Poets Society versus Saved! Exclamation point. Honestly, I think this is a really good encapsulation of the two ends of this bracket for the most part. On one hand, we have Dead Poet Society, which is... A teen sex comedy. No. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) A teen sex tragedy. God. (laughs) That statement is powerfully true. But it's also kind of Oscar-baity. It's very Oscar-baity, yeah. I mean, I think it did win a lot of awards, so yeah. It does happen to be a good Oscar-bait film. There are lots of not good Oscar bait films. And the Oscar goes to Green Book. But I think this one broadly holds up. And then we have Saved, which is this kind of quirky independent film about a Christian school. This one is much more teen sex comedy-ish. At least in energy, even if not strictly in content apart from that one time. So why don't we go ahead and start off with Dead Poet Society. Sure. So we can end on a lighter note. That sounds fun. Do you yeah. have a summary for us? Yeah. Um, although I will say this this movie gets into suicide stuff and we are going to read it through a somewhat queer lens. So I just want to put the Trevor Support Center hotline right here. Uh, that's 866-488-7386. So if you need that, that's there. The setting is the 1950s at Walton Academy, a preparatory school for boys. Wallflower Todd is a new kid assigned to room with talented disaster Neil Perry. While the place has stifling rules, new teacher John Keating brings unorthodox philosophy to his English class, instructing the students to rip up the textbooks, seize the day, and stand on their desks to see from new perspectives. Neil and company discover that Keating was at Walton in the past and had an unofficial club, the Dead Poet Society. They sat in a cave and read poetry. With his tacit blessing, they start the DPS again and start blossoming as people that Neil pursues acting despite his father's disapproval. Even though he crushes it as Puck in Midsummer, his father declares he's going to withdraw him from Dalton and send him to a military school. Seeing no way out, Neil commits suicide. The school's investigation into his death looks for a scapegoat in Keating. Uh, pressures of the Dead Poet Society to signing a letter, turning him in. Eventually, they give in, Todd signing last. But as Keating is fired and is gathering up his stuff, everyone stands on their desks to show how much they've changed. That's a broad stroke, so there's other stuff going on with that, but those are the important bits. We'll talk about the other characters as well. Yes. The other characters are all important, but Neil is definitely the main character. We start off the film with him. We most closely follow 
his trials and tribulations. Yeah. And Todd's perspective as a new kid helps us understand the culture a little bit better. And we're talking about stifling atmosphere. We mean very, very stifling. Like, I genuinely thought this was the 1800s because of how antiquated it feels. And I'm like, oh, right, there are cars. There seem to be phones. <laughs> People listen to that ethnic music. You got it, Pixie. You got it. Radio Free America. Yeah, this takes place in 1959. The movie came out in 1989, which means we are about as far removed from this movie's release as this movie was from when it takes place. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a lot of young actors who kind of built their career off of roles in this. Uh, like, we of course have Robin Williams, who's always a treat, mm -hmm. but we also have Robert Sean Leonard as Neil Perry. You may know him from movies such as Swing Kids, or probably one of his better known roles is Wilson from the TV show House. Um, we also have Ethan Hawke here. He was uh, Todd, right? Yeah, yeah, he was Todd. And they are both very fresh-faced. Like, I barely recognized them. They're tiny babies. Yes, but they are incredibly talented. Oh, yeah. I think that parts of this film's plot can be a little bit overwrought, but the acting really sells it. Yeah, all of the young actors are doing a really good job of selling being just kids. Neil's performance is honestly truly inspired. Like, the amount of like, frantic manic energy he brings is, like, really, really good. Mm -hmm. The way he can oscillate wildly between emotions is really cool. I would have loved to see him playing Rokusho. I should see if that exists. But we should talk about the members of the Dead Poets Society. I think it's... Probably best to kind of start with them. So we've already talked about Neil and Todd. Other prominent members, we also have Knox Overstreet. His main plot is he becomes infatuated with a girl and does dumb teenage boy things to woo her. Mm -hmm. She's a hot cheerleader with a rich boyfriend, you know, type. Yeah, and goes to the nearby public school. Mm-hmm. There's Charlie Dalton, who is kind of the class clown and always getting in trouble. And he really takes a lot of Keaton's teachings to heart. In fact, a little too much. He pens a letter and puts it in the school paper to advocate for uh, allowing girls into <laughs> the school. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a huge thing. Yeah, that's kind of when things start to take a turn for the yikes. Yeah. Also, um... At one point, he renames himself uh, Nuwanda, and I'm going to try to refer to him only as that for the podcast. Damn it, Neil. The name is Nuwanda. Fair enough. Yeah. He also paints a Indian symbol of virility on his chest, which is why I've declared yeah. that he's the Flash. Rounding out the Dead Poets Society, we also have Gerald Pitts and uh, Stephen Meeks, who are more background characters. They don't really get their own arcs, but they, they're fun characters. They're solid. They're kind of background thing going on is they're building a radio to get by the ban on them at the school so they can listen to music. Mm -hmm. They're kind of the characters who, if this were more of a, like, action-adventure type thing, would invent the gadget that saves the day or find the spells to defeat the striga or whatever. Yeah, and then we also have Richard Cameron, who is eventually the traitor. He's the one who initially turns on the Dead Poet Society and... Is Kiss kind of always been the like most straight-laced out of everyone? Mm -hmm. I went to a boarding school for two years, and the amount of the Dead Poet Society resonates with some of my experiences is a, a lot. I was in a group not unlike this, where we were all about pushing some of the limits of the rules, making our own way in things, self-discovery through art and culture, that kind of thing. 
And I remember we had someone like Pitts, we had someone like Cameron, we had someone like Neil, etc. We we had a Todd. And so this movie did a good job of capturing what that feels like mm. and, and how that group dynamic plays out. All right. So we kind of introduced our ca- the cast. I want to get into Knox. Knox's subplot has not aged super well. It's also really frustrating for me because I also see a lot of myself at that age in Knox. Right. He's doing dumb teenage boy things. However, dumb teenage boy things can get very problematic very fast. Yeah. Yeah. Things could be a lot worse, especially for kind of average of the sexual politics of teen film at the time. Yeah. There is definitely a scene where Knox and his love interest are drunk at a party. She is kind of passed out and he kisses her forehead and there's a whole blow up. He gets punched in the face by her boyfriend and then she defends him. I think if she hadn't defended him, I would, I'd be more okay with it because, I mean, no matter how tenderly you feel towards someone, that's still not cool and him getting punched is not undeserved. But her defense of him makes it feel like the movie thinks that he was in the right and her boyfriend is in the wrong, which I think is not quite the right balancing of that scale. Yeah. And in general, the like violent way that her boyfriend reacts to it is also bad like there are no good examples of teenage boys in relationships in this movie <laughs> well straight relationships anyway i would argue that nuanda bringing some <laughs> girls to a cave to have a good time and read poetry in which they have a good time and read some poetry is the best example we've got i think you're stre- yeah like at that point we're stretching like relationship that is more of like a date yeah whereas Knox pursuing chris gets pushy at times or it's yeah. Knox is not considering what she wants and how she feels, and he is kind of dead set and it's like, yeah, obviously I'm a great choice for a romantic partner, J- just date me already, and is not really considering her thoughts and feelings. He's Gatsbying a bit. Yeah. I did put the qualifier of straight relationships. We should probably talk about our queer reading. Oh boy. So... There is a long-running stereotype of boy in the theater as being kind of the acceptable way of showing a clearly queer character without actually saying it so that you can get past the censors. Mm -hmm. And Neil definitely reads that way. He has a lot of the the sort of the flamboyance. He doesn't really show a lot of interest in any of the girls who show up in the narrative, which there are like three. This is a a very like movie full of white men. There's going to be a lot of that in the bracket. There's a lot of all-male boarding schools. It's... It's something that we're just going to have to push through. We do have a few all-female boarding schools, though. Yeah. But he and Todd have this very close friendship that definitely has strong homoerotic undertones, overtones, whatever you want to call them. You want me out? No, I want you in. But being in means you've got to do something, not just say you're in. And I think that the reason it's not canon is more because that wasn't really something you were going to show in a mainstream film at the time, more than because that wasn't an option for what these characters feel like. I've seen a lot of movies that are this, but less well acted, but they they do kissing. This is a common genre. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in the text of the film to refute the implied queerness of Neil. And in fact, like the text of the film kind of reinforces it with how his parents react to theater and him defying them and his Parents are like the archetypical not supportive parents when someone comes out. Like you have his mother crying in the background and his father yelling, screaming, and like, no, this is how it's going to be. My house, my rules. I've got to tell you what I feel. I've been so worried. Tell me what you feel. 
What is it? Is it more of this, this acting business? Because you can forget that. This is definitely interacting with these tropes, even if it doesn't know. I don't know how intentional this was and how much this just kind of patterns really easily onto it. I will also say that the parents being this mad about going to a theater is incomprehensible to me as a person who was raised middle class and had very supportive parents. I know that it's probably very realistic that parents would want you know their kid to be a doctor or a lawyer or a business person, whatever. But it seems so overblown to me that I couldn't help but read it as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Especially, unfortunately, with the suicide aspect. Because of the Hayes Code, gays weren't really allowed to survive movies. So you either are a villain or you're, you end up dead. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say that a teenager committing suicide makes him more coded as gay, but eesh. It unfortunately really does. Yeah. It's very sad when that is the case, but that's unfortunately the reality that we live in. Uh-huh. And also, he, he's in Midsummer playing Puck, and Midsummer is the... Third queerest and least straight of Shakespeare's plays. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, I'm not arguing with you, but that's just very specific. One day I'll finish my dissertation. <laughs> He's also, like, nailing it as Puck. Yeah, doing a very good job. It's hard to tell how much of that is, like, the character acting really well versus the actor acting really well, but he's doing a really good job with a very fun role to play. Yeah. And honestly, that mercurial nature here is very reminiscent of the way Keating teaches in this film and just kind of in general of Robin Williams as an actor. I think that's one of the reasons that Neil and Keating gravitated so much to each other and Neil felt willing to come to him about his problems with theater and also was so interested in reigniting the Dead Poet Society. I think we'd be remiss not talk about Robin Williams as an actor. He's very, very good here, obviously. Yeah. Some of you may recall a number of episodes ago when we were talking about Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies and how we commented that we'd really like subtitles that showed the original text of the book versus what has been changed or added. (laughs) We talked about the same thing, but this time we want to know what was written in the script for Mr. Keating and what did Robin Williams Mm ad-lib. But while he's a very funny actor in a lot of scenes, the bit where he finds out that Neil committed suicide and you can tell he's clearly blaming himself for his role even unintentionally in it is really heartbreaking and he sells it without having anybody else in the room to bounce off of it. It's just in his face acting. And the dejection that we see in like the final scene of the film where he's coming to collect his things and slowly plods through the class as they are reading the passage of uh, the textbook that he told them to throw out. This film was also unfortunately made much more sad given what has happened to Robin Williams. Yeah. And it is definitely not an easy watch. No. It's still a very good film, but the last half has some very heavy emotions going on and they are only heightened by Mr. Williams' death. Mm -hmm. And his downfall and expulsion from the school don't make that much easier. But the way that the film ends with the students celebrating however defiantly and futilely what they've learned from him plays into that as well in that the reason that Rob Williams' death hits so hard is because of how many childhoods he's affected. And I think there's an element of the film that is now encouraging us to celebrate those lessons instead of being sad and shrinking away from that, which mm-hmm. I think is very important. Mm-hmm. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Previously, we were talking about that connection between Neil and Mr. Keating. We also talked about, okay, it's been about 30 years. 
and how you could definitely get away with a explicitly queer retelling of this. And we were talking about it. We'd love to see it. And we also think that Robert Sean Leonard, who played Neil in this one, would make a excellent Keating analog. Agreed. He has the right kind of energy and has the range to play that off. Yeah, and he's just about the right age to do it as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'd be hard to fill Rob Williams' shoes, but I feel like he would bring a different energy to the role, which I think would be fine. Okay. I think it's a bad idea to try to replace Rob Williams in an adaption. You should go for something very different. Yeah, you should transform that role into something entirely new. Yeah. And there have been some successes and there have been some failures in that regard. <sighs> Poor Will Smith. <laughs> One bit that it's not very important, I just want to like clear the air a bit. There's a very fun bit where Mr. Keating is talking about Now, language was developed for one endeavor, and that is Someone says, communication says, no, to woo women. And that's very funny, and I acknowledge that might not be the least problematic thing in the movie, but it still made me laugh. I think there's a kind of earnestness to that in that he is meeting these kids where they are at of being presumably horny teens who want to talk to the girls. Mm-hmm. There is definitely always been an aspect of poetry of trying to woo women. I mean, look at Sappho. Poetry at that was like, it was talking about how beautiful and amazing women are. And Sappho wanted to write poetry. And so she wrote about how beautiful and amazing women are. <laughs> I'm really glad that's exactly what I Thank you for of the pantheon of poetry about Sappho. Bless you. I have complicated thoughts on Mr. Kidding as a teacher I think there's a lot to unpack with Keating's teaching style, good and bad, but a part that I want to unpack here is how do we feel about him goading Todd, who's very shy and wallflowery, into improvising a poem on the spot in front of the class? Let's let's unpack that here and now. Who? Us oh, who are God. definitely qualified to talk about this. <laughs> I was an English student. I, I have that. I have a degree in English. On one hand, I definitely think it is Keating's job to get Todd to open up and be okay with talking in front of people and sharing his thoughts. Mm-hmm. It is necessary in a Miyagi-ish sense. And Keating knows it was going to be difficult, and he specifically told Todd that... Mr. Anderson! Don't think that I don't know that this assignment scares the hell out of you, you mole. And then Todd specifically avoided it. And I think that it's fair that Keating knew that he had to escalate things. Yeah, putting on on the spot like that sucks. But I think because of how things turned out, I'm okay with it. If things had turned out more poorly, I'm not sure if I would. And that kind of gets at the heart of the problem. It's that thing where because it worked, it was fine. But that would not necessarily work in a real world. And we're relying on the unreality of the film to deliver this happy ending for that scene. This film's not trying for hyper-realism. I acknowledge that this is the fantasy of a teacher who can come in and fix everything mm-hmm. and know what the students need, Yeah, which is a very nice fantasy. I think that that's very understandable and not inherently bad yeah. to fantasize about. That entire scene is very complicated from like a teacher ethics perspective, and like I just don't know. <laughs> right. I mean, I think... I think it was about saying that teachers probably shouldn't do that in real life. At least not in this setting where the students have so little power. Yeah. I think it's probably a situation where that might be workable, but maybe not here. But yeah. Yeah. I also think that we only have this one instance of Todd shirking away from his responsibilities as a student. If the film had had the time to show like this is a prolonged pattern and I need something drastic to get Todd out of this so he can succeed in this class... I think that would have been more acceptable, but 
like the constraints of time for the film, we can only get that like one instance. Right. A lot of the boys wind up being a little bit flattened because there's only so much time to pack in all this character and plot development for them. They still feel like very real characters, but they don't have all that much time to breathe. Yeah, they're they're not multifaceted. Todd Neal are probably the deepest characters, mm-hmm. but everyone else is kind of the archetype. Like Charlie is the class clown, Knox is the hopeless romantic, Meeks is the smart kid. Cameron is Cameron's the narc. <laughs> <laughs> Cameron's the narc. Pitts is the nerd, Meeks is the geek. Which is why I think a TV series version of this might be really fun, because you could really flesh out those characters, give them the time to breathe. You could do that thing where each episode is named after each character, so they each have like their story played mm-hmm. out. I, I'm a sucker for that. <laughs> I watched a lot more of Skins and it was worth it. Let's move on to, on to The Saved. <laughs> a much less heavy movie. Yes, definitely. <laughs> So, Mary Cummings is entering her senior year at Eagle Christian High School. She's best friends with the most popular and devout girl in school, Hilary Fay, and has a boyfriend, Dean. Things are perfect, until Dean confesses to her that he's gay. She's so shocked, she hits her head and has a vision of Jesus telling her to help Dean. She does so by having sex with him. As she goes to pick him up for the first day of school, she's instead greeted by his parents, informing her that they've sent him to Mercy House, a conversion camp, after finding gay porn in his room. When she tells her friends what's going on, they're shocked and put off. Soon after, Mary also discovers that she's pregnant. But after receiving no support before, she decides to conceal the pregnancy from her mom and classmates. Mary begins questioning her faith, and Hillary Faye's attitude, and is then ousted from the front group. Mary finally finds support from Roland, Hillary Faye's brother, and Cassandra, the only Jewish student in school. The three outcasts are constantly harassed by Hillary Faye and her Christian jewels, and eventually retaliate spreading an old, unflattering picture of Hillary Faye around the school. Hillary escalates even further and frames the trio for graffitiing the school. Cassandra's expelled, and Mary and Roland are banned from prom. Roland eventually discovers evidence to exonerate them, and they decide to go to prom to force a confrontation. Hillary Faye is exposed and runs off. After all that commotion, Deans and his friends from Mercy House crash the prom. The principal tries to eject them, but Mary stands up for them, while also revealing to Dean that she's pregnant. This argument is interrupted by Hillary Faye recklessly driving into the school sign, which is then eclipsed by Mary going into labor and an ambulance arriving to take her to the hospital. <laughs> Mary gives birth to a baby girl and in voiceover explains how her faith in a loving and accepting God has been strengthened by the experience. Where do we want to start with Saved? Which is, this movie is teetering on the edge of Poe's Law. Yeah, I think it's probably a decent place to start. The tone is very sarcastic and is clearly trying to mock the culture that it's making fun of, but it's not quite heightened enough. It's like they were trying for heart every now and again and could have gone less so. We need more Mean Girls is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I think the only thing that makes this film decidedly a satire is Macaulay Culkin's character of Roland. Mm-hmm. He is just sarcastic and cynical enough that it highlights all of the poignancy of the film. Yeah. Luckily, they also let us know pretty early on that the characters aren't necessarily meant to be the sharpest light bulbs in the fishbowl when Mary describes... Cassandra Edelstein was the only Jewish to ever attend American Eagles. Yes. But looking back, it makes me laugh harder at one of Hillary Faye's jokes when they're at a Christian shooting range, where she talks about- I'm saving myself until marriage, and I'll use force if necessary. Yep, that, that's a thing. That's a lot. Uh, like, there's also things like Mary talking about- Accepting Jesus into your heart and getting saved is a big decision. 
especially for a three-year-old. This film is making fun of like the culture of evangelical Christianity, especially the culture of 2004 evangelical Christianity, by just showing you what it is. Prayer works, it's been medically proven. Which I'm glad we have Roland and Cassandra to make fun of the whole thing from the inside. Yes. Only one reason Christian girls come down to the Planned Parenthood. She's planning a pipe bomb. Okay, two reasons. <laughs> Which, wow. Oh, such a great joke. That said, a lesser great joke is uh, the guy in a wheelchair being named Roland. I don't... Yeah. I, it's... <laughs> yeah. Mm, mm. Like, everything beyond that. It's, and the fact that not played by a wheelchair-using actor... Roland's actually good rap. I actually went looking for some evangelical discussion of this film and unfortunately wasn't able to find it. I don't think the timelines quite match up. This film is from 2004. The evangelical movement didn't really coalesce into an actual movement until about 2016. So it's probably out there, but it's not necessarily labeled as evangelical, and it's a little harder to find. Shockingly, the same discourse doesn't have SEO. <laughs> I was able to find a article from... Uh, Christianity Today, although it was most of it was trapped behind a subscription wall. But I was able to find a review from uh, Disability Studies Quarterly from their fall of 2005 issue, which, like, it's a pretty short one. I'm just kind of going to summarize some of the main points here. They think Roland is a pretty positive portrayal of someone in a wheelchair, mostly because he's just a regular kid who happens to be in a wheelchair. Like, he is sarcastic and cynical, but not because he's bitter about his disability, just because that's who he is. The romance between he and Cassandra is really good, and it's not, like, based upon the fact that he is disabled. They just really like each other, they get each other, and they complement each other well. It is shockingly tender. And the film even uses abuse directed towards Roland to highlight how awful Hilary Faye is. The first act of the film has a lot of it there where Hilary Faye just has all these awful comments towards Roland and at one time tosses the arsler at him because he asked what she perceives as a dumb question. Mm-hmm. Hilary Faye is the kind of character that normally I'm really defensive of. Cross-reference uh, your Cordelia Chases, your uh, Lydia Martins, your Cheryl Blossoms, etc., but Hilary Faye was not doing it for me. I was not here for her mean girlery. It is more mean than fun. Yeah. And I also think that part of it is that because it's steeped in that superiority and holier-than-thou-ness, which is kind of what the film's getting at. It's Evangelical Christianity has a culture problem where people like Hilary Faye are on the surface preaching, you know, love and acceptance of God, but are incredibly hypocritical and really self-serving. My first exposure to Saved was in confirmation class back when I was a Lutheran. Um, we had a very cool pastor who wanted to show us parts of this movie but couldn't work the mute button fast enough, so when Mary starts just swearing at a church, uh... Shit! Fuck! We learned some fun new words that day. <laughs> those, those were not on that week's vocabulary list. <laughs> But I think this movie, while it has flaws, is very important to watch as a youth who is practicing Christianity and needs to understand the ways that Christianity can be used harmfully. It has a very good point, even if it doesn't always make it in a graceful way. I think part of the trouble with that is that it's balancing a lot of characters and a whole year of school, and it goes by really fast. Like, there's suddenly Halloween, suddenly Christmas, suddenly Valentine's Day, because they kind of just, like, get through two trimesters 
really quickly. Yeah, it's like that one sight gag from Not Another Teen Movie, where like it's the beginning of a school, next week prom, week after graduation. <laughs> exactly. That's just how teen movies are, because like they need to hit all of the big things. So like beginning of school and like the first assembly, introducing all the new kids. Like, then you've got Halloween, then you've got Christmas, and prom. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. I'm not going to talk smack on this movie for not conquering a fairly difficult thing, mm -hmm. especially for its pretty short runtime. It's like yeah. an hour 30. Yeah. But I think that because it's trying to pack all the story in while also having a message TM, it, yeah. it kind of fumbles a little bit. Yeah, like it just has a lot of characters that it's juggling. So you have Mary, Roland Cassandra, Hilary Faye, I believe Veronica and Tia are the two lackeys yeah they're her mary and sarah uh, sanderson and then we also have mary's mom and pastor skip who have a romance going on then we have mary's new love interest patrick pastor skip's son who's a like skateboarding evangelical person and then we do get at least one little snippet of dean at mercy house and his boyfriend mm -hmm. because we have so many characters with so many plot lines that don't all intersect we don't really get a sense of them as characters sometimes like if i were making this i would cut the whole pastor skip mom thing entirely i get what it's doing here but i don't think it works yeah. and they don't really relate to anybody else i think you can do all the mom stuff on their own and be fine yeah like i appreciate what they're trying to do with pastor skip he is so rigid in his application of faith that he is making himself miserable because of it and pushing people who care about him away his wife his son his new love interest in mary's mom and i wish the film did more with it but it doesn't have time to in the same way i don't really get his son like he hangs out with hillary faye and her posse so that he can be more easily written into scenes where the characters are interacting I don't understand why he'd hang out with them. Surely there are other boys in this school, other people to hang out with. I get the Hillary Faye would be like, ooh, hot new kid. But I don't know why they would be friends. Like, it's weird to me that he doesn't have any male friends in this movie. Yeah. He kind of just shows up when we want to cause complications for Mary, who very much likes him, but also is pregnant. Mm -hmm. And hides it remarkably well, thanks to a shopping montage. Yeah, th thanks to a shopping montage and also as she puts it. Lucky for me, at our school, teen pregnancy was about as common as the flesh-eating virus. No one really seemed to catch on. No one notices until they are searching her locker for evidence of graffitiing and the sonogram of the baby pops out. Yep. Uh, Which, I mean, I could believe that for a, a little bit, but that's like seven months in at that point. Also, the music that they have going during the reveal of the pregnancy to Mary's mom and Pastor Skip is amazing. It highlights that scene so perfectly with just how awkward and dumb everything is. Something we have not gotten into quite yet is how very good the romance between Roland and Cassandra is. Right, we kind of touched on it a bit, but honestly, that is the thing that I care the most about in this movie. These two malcontents having this very sweet, tender relationship growing. Mm -hmm. It's also complex. After Cassandra gets expelled, she kind of runs off and leaves Roland, who's like trying to talk to and console her. And she realizes what she did was shitty, tries to find him, and Roland has gone and thought about the relationship, and they have a really, like, important conversation. It's like, I don't want to be the guy who's with the girl because he needs her. 
I want to be the guy who's with the girl because he wants her. And I want you. It is such a good and important scene. Yeah. It's a very mature conversation that I think is much more nuanced than anything else happening in the movie. Yes. I feel bad for saying that I'd rather focus on them as characters, but I'm more compelled by these two than by other stuff going on. I'm pretty sure the writers and directors agree with you. I think they are definitively the favorite characters of this film. That's yeah. one of the reasons why they get so much screen time outside of Mary, who is our protagonist. Mm-hmm. I get it. They're very fun characters. I love them. They're also the easiest to use as direct peak of the system. Yeah, like they are the... Uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, or Statler and Waldorf of the film. Yes. Also, good pulls both ways. We haven't really talked about the like openly queer characters in this movie. Who are there? They unfortunately get put on a bus and then brought back at the end. Yeah. On the one hand, I wouldn't mind seeing more of the time at Mercy House and what that's like, but also, it's hard to make gay re-education camps funny, I say, despite having seen uh, But I'm a Cheerleader. Yeah, I was just about to say, <laughs> if you want to see what happens at Mercy Camp, just go watch But I'm a Cheerleader. Yeah. Like, honestly, these films are great companion pieces. Right. Either this But I'm a Cheerleader or this in Latter Days, but also, like, spending more time there would have been more time away from everything else, and there is not time for that. Mm. One thing we haven't touched on is really important. It's great that Hilary Faye has a downfall and gets exposed for being the hypocrite that she is, but it all begins because of fat shaming. Oh yeah, and that's really shitty. Yeah, it is super unfortunate. <laughs> the old unflattering picture they find, like she is, she is heavier and she has headgear and is in this very ugly sweater. Yeah. Especially because the dialogue directly compares it to having a physical disability like Roland does. She wasn't always pretty. My parents didn't want to have two handicapped kids, and she was the easy pick. I'm super not here for that. I think we could have conversations about the crossover between disability and having orthodontia needs that are severe enough to need like very visible headgear. But that needs way more nuance, and the film is going to give that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to say I think they're comparable. I'm saying there's def- a conversation to be had there about what can yeah. and cannot be fixed what should and should not be fixed there's a grain of truth to it but really just a grain and it it'd be interesting to talk about but this film doesn't have time to do that right and honestly i don't trust it to have the nuance to do that either at this point no and unfortunately the conversation about disability and disfigurement in film are moving real damn slow Uh, i would like for that to get somewhere but also like for disabled and disfigured creators to be able to create things instead of you know what we have now yeah yeah them dying because they don't have medical insurance yep it sucks it sucks a lot one last thing that i want to talk about it's this really interesting visual storytelling thing so mary's mom at the beginning of the film starts off as a brunette she eventually bleaches her hair to blonde i think sometime around halloween or christmas in the chronology of things a scene or two after we first see her with blonde hair it's revealed that her and Pastor Skip have this like relationship going. And then after Pastor Skip calls it off because look what happened to Mary while we were living in sin. <laughs> oh, you're fornicating. She goes back to being a brunette. It's just this really interesting visual storytelling going on and I appreciate it. Yeah, that was good and subtle. I wish we had more of that kind of thing. Yeah, but not a lot about this movie is subtle. <laughs> Mm-mm. 
I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Like, it's a very fun movie, but it's just, it's not a subtle one. Yeah. And I mean, I think that for a message piece like this, you kind of have to be unsubtle. Like, there's the the bit where uh, Mary's like, this is not a weapon while holding a Bible, which I get. But it does mean the movie feels less graceful. It doesn't have a lot of subtlety under the obvious stuff as well. Yeah. So the last thing we want to do with movies this bracket is have a conversation about who fits the archives best? Who is the most prep, most nerd, most goth, and most jock? Hilary Faye is obviously the most prep of either of these two films. I was going to say Cameron. I think Hilary Faye has it beat up by just a little bit. Like, All right. Cameron at least attempts to be a member of the Dead Poets Society. That's true. Hilary Faye would never deem as such. That's true. Who is the most nerd? I was going to propose Meeks. Yeah, I definitely think Meeks. Mm-hmm. Like, Meeks is attempting to hand build a radio <laughs> to get past the van. <laughs> And when called out on it, plays it off as like... No, sir. Science experiment. Radar. (laughs) Knowing what radar is in the 50s is pretty impressive, honestly. Who is the most goth? Oh, obviously Cassandra. Okay. I was going to say Cassandra or or Neil. But... uh... Neil's too happy to be goth. (laughs) True. At least towards the beginning of the film. Right. Neil definitely has that inner darkness and... Had the unfortunate not happened, he definitely would have gone goth to, to deal with not being able to do what he loved. Yeah. But Cassandra is distinctly the most goth. I feel like Cassandra is more punk than goth. There's only really a punk part of the, these alignment charts. So Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're declaring. Uh, goth and punk are synonymous for... For our purposes. For here. our purposes, yeah. Then uh, who is most jock? Patrick skateboards because that makes him fairly jock. I was actually going to say, I'm sure the character has a name. I can't remember, but in Dead Poet Society, who he writes the poem, the cat set on the mat. <laughs> the most basic ass poem he possibly could, <laughs> just to complete this assignment. And Mr. Key's like, I don't mind that your poem had a simple theme. Sometimes the most beautiful poetry can be about simple things, like a cat or a flower or rain. You see, poetry can come from anything with the stuff of revelation in it. Just don't let your poems be ordinary. <laughs> That's fair. Like, he, to me, epitomizes, maybe not the sportiness of a jock, but the... The masculine-coded disinterest in the humanities. Of yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's fair. I'll give it to you. Cool. We have our alignment chart for this episode, but who is the best film? I really love Saved. I think it is a very fun film. It, unfortunately, has a few problematic elements but what film doesn't especially a film from 2004 and i think there are probably a lot of people for whom this was a very important film it's it's in that dogma space where you need to have something that clumsily critiques religion so people can start having a more nuanced conversation about it yeah i think honestly in a lot of ways this is dogma for evangelicals (laughs) the high school au of dogma (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i'm sure that fan fiction exists but yeah, I am definitely voting for Dead Poets Society to move forward. There's a lot more stuff that I want to talk about with it. We didn't really even get into many of like the technical things that it does. And it it's such a wonderful, interesting film. Mm-hmm. I felt really proud of myself for comparing it to The Prime of Miss Jean Brody and then found that other people had also done that. So I'll have a whole thing about that later on. <laughs> um, which, your homework for this episode is go watch The Prime of Miss Jean Brody uh, starring Maggie Smith from the 70s. It's really, really good and really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot like this film, but on a less uplifting perspective. Yeah. In addition to that, your other homework is to prepare for next week's episode on 
young Sherlock Holmes, and she's the man. <laughs> also, we're going to have a special guest lecture, so get hyped for that. We hope you all tune in next week for that. But until then, make sure to follow us on your podcasting application of choice, Twitter and Facebook on social media. This has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Class dismissed.